Good evening, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Strong Women's Strange Worlds podcast. Tonight, my guest is Barbara Krasnoff, author, editor, and contributing writer to the online magazine The Verge. And tonight, she'll be reading a piece from her upcoming mosaic novel, and we'll be discussing why she calls it a mosaic novel The History of Soul 2065. Hello, Barbara. How are you tonight? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Good. And thank you so much for joining me tonight on the Strong Women's Strange Worlds podcast. Oh, thank you. First off, I just wanted to say, listening to your piece, incredibly haunting, and I can't wait to be talking about it. So first off, introduce yourself, and then we can get into the fun stuff. Okay. Hi, my name is Barbara Krasnoff. Nice to meet you all out there in podcast land. I'm from Brooklyn, as you can probably tell from my accent. I've had short stories appear in a variety of print and online publications. Um, I've been publishing longer than I care to admit. I've had one story called Sabbath Wine, which is in the history of Seoul 2065, and which was originally published in the anthology Clockwork Phoenix 5, and that was a Nebula Award finalist, which was fabulous. Um, I have a short story called Time and Art, which will appear in a future issue of Fantasy and Science Fiction, which I'm hugely excited about because it's my dream to be in that particular publication. And I am a tech writer. Well, not tech writer. I am. I write how-tos for The Verge, which um, some of you may be reading online. And that's where I am. Oh, and I write a lot of short stories. I've I've never written a successful, real, actual novel, but I'm working on it. Nice. It's I was going over some of the online magazines that that you have listed in your autobiography or in your biography on your website. That's an impressive list. And I want to talk about that later. Sure. Set, Set up this piece that you're going to read for us tonight. It's from the Gingerbread House. And I I have to say, it's just absolutely haunting. Um, Well, basically, it takes place in 1928 in Berlin, and it's about a little girl, about four or five years old, named Isabeau. She is the daughter of of the girl who opens the novel of the history of Seoul 2065. But um, at this point, she's four, uh, Isabeau is four or five. She and her older brother have been taken by her father to a performance of the opera Hansel and Gretel. Um, This is in Berlin. And they are, uh, she is part of a fairly uh, well-off Jewish family, and which is how they can afford the tickets. And, um, but being only four or five, the witch terrified her during the performance. She starts to cry in the middle of the opera. And so her father has taken her and her brother backstage because he's going to prove to her that it isn't a real witch. It's just somebody an actor playing a witch and that's where the story begins wonderful so let's take a listen and then we'll come back and talk about it some more in the gingerbread house here we are darling look isn't it exciting this is where all the actors are when they're not on the stage isabeau's papa and her big brother willie have just taken her to what they explained is the backstage of the berlin state opera and Isabeau, named, her mother told her, after a beautiful medieval Bavarian queen, 
doesn't like it at all. She is just four years and six months and five days old. And although she is trying to be brave, there are too many strange adults around, some wearing bright costumes, some wearing ordinary clothing, some with their faces stiff and strange under heavy makeup. Why is that man wearing lipstick? Willie asks, and Papa says, so he can be seen more clearly on the stage. He'll take it off before he goes out of the theater. Don't point, Wilhelm. It's rude. Isabeau doesn't like it here. It's loud and frightening. She wants to go home, which has deep carpets, and the servants speak in quiet tones, and she can play with her bunny and her music box, and listen to Grandmama's pet bird making comfortable noises in its sleep. This way, Isabeau, and her father steers her gently through the confusing mass of grown-ups. Her brother, who kicked her under the seat when she started to cry during the third act of Hansel and Gretel, now stares around wide-eyed. Perhaps, she thinks, he won't take the head off a new doll like he threatened, because he is now obviously very happy with this strange new adventure. Look, Willie says, pointing excitedly, that must be the gingerbread house. Four men carry a large, flat thing that looks like the front of a house. At least, it doesn't look flat, but the men are carrying it like it's flat. It makes Isabeau's headache. Her father places her hand in her brother's. Wilhelm, he says, and his voice has that slightly louder ring that means he's about to give an order. You hold your sister's hand and don't move. I want to find you both here when I get back. Are you listening to me, Wilhelm? Yes, Papa, says Willie in that eager way that says he's really interested in what's happening here. And he'll even mind his baby sister if it means that he can stay a little longer. Isabeau isn't happy about being left alone in this forest of adult legs with her brother, who is a big boy but sometimes can forget about her when something exciting happens. Willie, she asks, where did Papa go? Willie is so consumed by the activity around him that he temporarily forgets how much he hates to be questioned by his little sister. He'll be right back, he says. But when she sniffles a bit, he reasserts himself. Isa, don't cry. Papa will take us home, and I want to see everything. Isa, if you cry, I'll hit you. But Isabeau can't help it. She's tired and frightened. In desperation, Willie looks around. Look, Isa, he cries, and bending quickly, picks something shiny off the floor and puts it in her hand. I found a, a magic jewel. It probably fell off the dress of the witch. It will protect you, even when Papa isn't here. Look, Isa, isn't it pretty? Isabeau, who hates being called Isa, opens her hand and looks at a blue-green gem glittering and reflecting the lights in the ceiling. There is a small loop on the back where it was sewn to the witch's dress. It really is magic, isn't it? She breathes. Yes, so you don't have to cry now. Here. Willie, impressed with his own ingenuity, reaches into his pocket and brings out a grimy piece of string. He puts the string through the loop and ties it around Isabeau's neck. 
Now you won't lose it. What kind of magic does it do? Isabeau asks excitedly. But Willie is back to filling his eyes with the activity around him. Look, he whispers, look at that man with the toolbox swearing at all the actors. I want to be like that when I grow up. Isabeau is nothing if not stubborn. Willie, what will it do? She knows that if she pitches her voice just high enough, her brother will be forced to pay attention. He'll either answer her question or hit her. And in a room full of grown-ups, he's less likely to resort to the latter. Willie, what will the magic jewel do? It will tell you stories, says Willie desperately, but only if you keep quiet. Isabeau lifts the jewel on its string and puts it to her ear, but she doesn't hear anything, not even as much as the seashell that her mama gave her last summer. Willie! But her brother is back to staring at the actors. She clutches at his hand. He'll long to become a stage actor, but will instead act various parts as a prisoner, and then as an undercover OSS operative, whispers the jewel. He'll suffer a stroke at age 75, leaving behind a dying son and a suicidal wife with a faded number etched on the inside of her forearm. Willie, Isabeau whispers, the magic jewel is telling me stories. What's a stroke? Oh, isn't she adorable? A lady in a beautiful blue costume with sparkles around her eyes and filmy stuff in her hair crouches in front of Isabeau so that they are nearly eye to eye. Hello, what is your name? Isabeau is too struck by the beautiful lady to say anything, but Willie pokes her in the side and she says, Isabeau. A little young for you, isn't she, Lena? Says a thin man passing by. And the lady says, shut up, idiot, in a voice totally unlike her other. She turns back to the children. Isabeau is such a lovely name, just right for such a lovely little girl. She leans forward. Will you give me a kiss, Isabeau? Isabeau nods, puts the jewel to one ear, and leans forward to press her lips against the lady's cheek. She tastes of perfume and a strange chalky substance, and there is a small mole just under her ear. The jewel whispers. She will become the mistress of an SS officer and travel with him to Paris. She will live well until they must return to Berlin, where she will be shot, trying to protect an emerald earring from two Russian soldiers. Isabeau! It's her papa's voice and the lady smiles at her once again and goes away. Isabeau eagerly looks around. Her papa kneels down next to her. Remember the witch in the opera? The one that frightened you so much? Isabeau nods. She was mean. She tried to hurt the children. And you remember I told you that she was only acting? That it was just a story? That she was just pretending to hurt the children? He reaches over and strokes her hair. The voice whispers. He will die naked and terrified, clutching the hand of his beloved wife, Sophia, flung into a hole in the ground by the force of the bullets. His last thought will be gratitude that his children have escaped. <laughs>
Isabeau starts to cry. She throws herself at her father, clutching desperately at his neck. Her father sighs. God in heaven, children. He mutters, gathering her up and stands, holding her in his large, strong arms. Darling, listen to me. You trust your papa, don't you? Well, I'm going to prove to you that the witch you saw isn't a real witch, but just somebody play pretending to be a witch. But you have to be a nice, quiet little girl and not get upset or scared. Remember, nothing bad can happen as long as you're with me. All right? Yes, Papa. How about you, Isabel wants to ask, still gulping back her tears. But her father is calling for her brother and telling him to get over here now, Wilhelm. Her father is so big and firm and real, so in charge of everything around him, that Isabeau decides magic can be wrong sometimes. Perhaps, she thinks, if she tries to take care of her father, like he takes care of her, those bad things will go away. How haunting was her reading. To hear just a small piece of the future of each of the people around her, especially her father, poor Isabeau, how horribly frightening for her, and how heartbreaking for us, as we all know what's to come. Now, you've said these stories are written or have been written years apart from each other, the stories in your collection, anthology. How would you, how do you want it described as? Oh, well, uh, my friend Rick Bowes, who was a fabulous author in his own right, um, described this kind of book as a mosaic novel. Oh, basically because what you have is a, is a group of short stories uh, that are essentially short stories, independent stories, but that also weave together and fit into one another to create a whole. And that's what this basically is. It's some of the stories were written for the book. Some of the stories were written years apart. But the characters are sort of dance in and out of, of each of the stories. And by the time you get to the end, you feel you know the characters. You feel you've read an entire history of these two families, um, even though the stories may be independent in of themselves. Tell us about these stories and what was the inspiration behind this mosaic of, of stories? This is how it happened. I've been a short story writer for most of my life. Some of my friends who have written novels have basically said, how the hell do you do it? How do you do like a short story? <laughs> and I, my, my answer is, how do you write so many words? I can't, I, I can't get my attention on it that long. So I, have all, I had all these short stories and I really wanted a book for myself. I wanted something with my name on it, um, which you don't get when you're writing short stories unless you can convince someone somewhere to put together a collection. And um, at that point, I wasn't ambitious enough to do it myself. These days, I might have. I might have done some self-publishing. But at that point, I wasn't ready for it. And um, I was having dinner with some friends, and one of my friends, Carolyn Fireside, who was a wonderful editor and writer in herself, suggested that perhaps I could weave some of my short stories into a novel. Uh, she said, because a lot of your characters are basically the same person, just with a different name. And she was right. A lot of these, the characters in many of my stories, not all, but many, 
were sort of rewritten or reimagined people from the history of my family or the history of the family of my partner, Jim Freund. And so I started to create a family tree using the stories that I had published. And I started placing them in the family tree and then changing some names, changing some dates, and realized that absolutely, that for that one story where you had a main, someone who was a main character and he was uh, named Jakey, and in one story, he's he's an older man in a hospital. And in another story, he sort of appears in part of the story as a young soldier in World War II. And in yet another story, he's hanging out with some friends at a poker game. And so I just re rearranged them. And I managed to interest uh, Mike Allen of Mythic Delirium, which is a very nice independent press. And he suggested... He looked at them and made some suggestions and said, I needed three or four more stories to weave them together. So I wrote those and rearranged them some more. And that's and that's how it all happened. So these characters are in part based on real people. Absolutely. For example, the character of Jakey is based partially on my father, the ca a character named Gretel who appears in a couple of, as a young mother in one story and as an elderly woman, another, um, is based somewhat on Jim's mother, who was a Holocaust survivor, although not concentration camp, but she was a survivor. Other characters are also based, and some extremely loosely, on people and events on my life. I will say that almost none of them, including Jakey and Gretel, some of the others, none of them are exactly, you know, it's not like, this is who my father was, or this is who Jim's mom was, mainly because I don't really know who they were. Um, I can't know who they were. I can't know how they thought. This is just my imagining of who they were. And some people are a combination of two and three and four different people all squashed <laughs> into one. Isabel, the young girl in the story you read, is she based off of anyone or partially based off anyone? Actually, no. Isabel is herself. I'm trying to think. Sophie is based a little bit. It's funny. The two original girls are in, in the piece, Hannah, Sophie and Hannah, are both based on different aspects of my grandmother. Oh, Sophie is also based a little bit on Jim's mom, who grew up in a, in a very well-off um, German family who went to France to a girl's school like uh, like Isabeau does. So Isabeau has little aspects. Khana, like my grandmother, grew up in Ukraine, was, was from a very political family. Sophie, like my grandmother, um, turned out to be very well educated. So they had a little piece, but Isabeau is not based on any one person, no. It must have been difficult to write some of these stories considering the backstory and how it all comes together. I don't really want to give a lot of it away. But yeah, it's a very heartbreaking subject to write about. It is. I was I had to be very, very careful. Um, and it was very hard because in at least one of the stories, I am basically trying to get into the head of somebody who survived horrors. I mean, I was able I did speak a little bit to uh, Jim's mom about it, but not 
a lot. I didn't want to get, you know, I wasn't writing the story at that time. I just, you know, she and I had some conversations. She was a lovely, lovely woman. I just had to be very careful. And some of the, some of the um, other stories as well, especially the ones about my father who passed away in 2001 and who I loved very much were very hard to write, but this is what I do. (laughs) It sounds almost cathartic telling their story in a way that people would be able to listen to it. Whereas if any other way, it wouldn't be told. It really is. It's, it's about people whose stories I can only imagine, but who I think I would, who I wanted to be represented in some way, remembered in some way, you know, and, and not, not in the whole general remembrance thing, but these people and what they experienced and what their lives were like. And so I did my best to express what I think it was about and take stories that I was told about my family and about Jim's family and just put them down and weave them into story form. I'm curious about the magical part and the whispers that comes from that little jewel that Isabeau has. Does that theme follow through each one? No. Each, each story has some kind of fantastic element in them, but they're not the same. The jewel is mentioned in another story. I won't say how, but it's mentioned briefly. There are some other jewels, for example, earrings and, and other things. There are magical things that happen to people who don't want them to happen or who don't have any power over whether they happen or not. Um, there's one or two stories in there that, that I originally classified as science fiction rather than fantasy. And I think I would still classify them as such. So each each one is a little bit different. Which story, and you can say the title because that way the reader will be able to focus on that when they purchase your novel, novelette, no, mosaic of stories, was the most fun to write. I know that sounds kind of sacrilege, but there must have been one story that you found easier to write or more fun to write, despite the backdrop. Oh, I think if we're talking about the one that's most fun to write, I think Hearts and Minds, um, which is basically, and I can say this without giving anything away, which is basically about four or five people from different backgrounds sitting around um, playing cards playing hearts specifically. It's sort of a, one of those stories that has a punchline, but the people were just fun to write, especially because they're, they're from different backgrounds and different times, but they're also all these sort of lefty radicals. And one of them just (laughs) breaks out into this almost absurd, but heartfelt rant and when I read that one out loud, when I, when I do a reading with that one, I just love it because it reminds me so much of some of my relatives. <laughs> so let's talk about your other short stories and the numerous writing credits that you have. I was just in awe of some of these magazines that have published your work, Apex in particular. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you meant, and you mentioned about being up for Nebula. Oh, yes. It was the 2016 Nebula. It was up for short story. It appeared in the Clockwork Phoenix 5 um, anthology, which was edited by Mike Allen. It was the same press that eventually did the History of Soul 2065. How exciting was that to have your story nominated for such an award? Oh, my God. I mean, I didn't expect it at all. And I was, I remember I was, I was working at home and 
and they called me up. I got the call, the call, <laughs> and I hung up and I, I sort of just stared at the phone for a while. It was, it was sort of like, oh no, this is not happening. This can't be happening. How can this be happening? I was, I was just thrilled. And it's, it's always, it's, this is one of my, my best memories. One of the wonderful things that happened was that, you know, I didn't win, obviously, but that, I, I was still incredibly happy about the whole thing. And each table at the dinner had, had these, these robot art pieces. They all looked like robots, but they were all made out of like tea kettles and forks and, and kitchen things and, and just wonderful looking things. And behind my back, Jim basically went and bought the one that was on our table. And so, and after, after the whole um, presentation said, here, here is your, you know, for <laughs> your Nebula Runners Up Award. And Aww. it was just adorable. And I have, I have my little robot to remember it by. So. Oh, that is just an incredible story. I love that. And to do it like, yeah, you've always got more than just a memory of that night. Exactly. So out of all the other stories, where do your ideas come from? Well, a lot of them come from, you know, family stories. Some of them just, you know, I, I'm sitting around, you know, it's sort of like, oh, this would be, this would be cool. One, for example, which is not in the book, uh, which is, which was an abyss and apex. And it's called was triumph home into a house. It basically came because I had a friend who got locked out of his apartment and um, oh, no. because of problems with the landlord, apparently the landlord sent in people to move things out and they sat around and had pizza. And then the landlord discovered he couldn't do it legally. So they left and locked and left all the pizza and everything strewn around. So when my friend went back to get his stuff, the place was crawling with roaches. Oh, crawling and I and 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 I had to I came in with him trying to get his stuff out and I have a thing I have a thing about insects so that was not not fun and that led eventually to this story which is about a woman who basically lose in a society a future society which is practically a crime not to have a job so she is sent in to clean up an old department and she, they say, if you do a good job, then you get to live rent free for six months while you try to find a job because you can't get a job without an address. And it's about her and the other people in the apartment house and the kids who help her and um, her realization that maybe she doesn't want to be part of this society. You know, she starts out as sort of this middle class person who's working to try to get back on top and real. And she starts realizing what's going really going on underneath there. But it all came simply out of, I started writing about this person's apartment with the 5,000 roaches. <laughs> I've, I've dealt with having to help someone move out of an apartment with cockroaches. And it's you cannot pack anything and leave it there. You have to literally pack it as you're going and take it out the door or they will get inside the boxes. Yeah. Oh, just, oh yeah. Ugh. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, it was a lot of fun not. Um, <laughs> You mostly do short stories, but you did mention at the beginning that you are writing a novel or you would like to write a novel. Well, yeah, I'm work. I'm almost finished, I hope, with the first draft. I had started another novel several years ago and I, it, I never got to the end of it. Um, this one I'm, I'm trying very, very hard to finish. 
And right now, tentatively, it's called After the Ball, which is um, after the song After the Ball, um, which is a 1920s, I believe, no, earlier. It's a uh, turn of this early in the 20th century song, which people can look up if they want. I refuse to sing it because I will ruin it for you. I have no <laughs> voice. But it's about Heart Island, which is ba- where the poor and people who do not have any, who cannot afford a funeral or who have no relatives to see to them after they die, where they've been buried for generations upon generations and generations. It's an island off the coast of Queens, I believe, between the Bronx and Queens. I've always been fascinated by it. It just recently, it used to be under the auspices of, you know, the people who run the jails. So burial was being done by people from Rikers Island who were let out for the day to do that. And nobody was allowed on the island but them. But recently it was, it has been passed over to the Parks Department. And if it wasn't for the pandemic, more and more people could actually visit it and visit their relatives. But it's a fascinating story. And I've always been just fascinated by the idea of all these people who were buried there without names. The records of many of them have been lost. I did write one story about that a little while ago. It was published in Space and Time back in 2020. Um, It was called Dead Time on Heart Island, but it didn't seem like enough to me. So now I'm writing a whole different story. It has nothing to do with the story in Space and Time. And so that's what I'm working on. Are you finding it a bit more of a struggle because it isn't a contained short story or are you kind of winging it along and writing it as you go? I I was having a lot of trouble. And then I took what I think is the core of the story. I said, okay, I'm going to write this as a short story. And then I'll add the rest of it onto it. And that's basically what, what I did. I've been a, I think I'm getting along. I have to bring the whole thing to my writers group and we'll see what they have to say. Do you have any future mosaic stories, short stories that you plan on writing? Well, since I didn't really plan on these being a mosaic (laughs) novel, I'm not sure. I do have a bunch of other short stories that did not appear in this. And I I possibly will publish them in a more um, traditional collection since I don't think they could be woven in and out of each other the way this one has. So I think this is going to be my main mosaic novel. And after that, I'll either do a traditional novel or I will do a traditional collection. Oh, an anthology of sorts. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Barbara, for speaking with me tonight. I'm, I had such a wonderful time. Thank you. You're, 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 it was just so much fun to speak to you about this stuff. And you asked some very difficult questions. (laughs) I'm sorry. I can sometimes see that in that look in the the author's eye. They're like, oh my God, I don't know how to, but you did very well. Thank you. And I hope you have a great evening and that maybe when your novel comes out, we can do this again. Oh, I hope so. And um, this this may be an impetus for me to actually finish it. Nice. Well, I certainly do look forward to hearing more about it and seeing it when it finally is released onto the world. Thank you. So you have a great evening. You too. And thanks again. It's great. I love the term mosaic novel. 
because that's exactly what this is. A collage of heartfelt tales woven together to create a beautiful story tapestry. And the fact a few were written years ago, but still blend in with the theme, makes it even more magical. That's all I have for tonight, listeners. And again, thank you for joining me tonight. And make sure to check out our website at www.strongwomenstrangeworlds.weebly.com for more strong women and other underrepresented gender identity authors of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Good night.